So last week I began by speaking about, you know, the challenge of being a human being, all of the difficulties we face, and how the Buddha spoke about how even in the midst of this life of great uncertainty, we could find true refuge. Well, tonight I wanted to speak about an aspect of this, which is uh, what often is our knee-jerk response to this life of uncertainty, where we may feel incredibly vulnerable and not have a sense of refuge, but where we are fearful, afraid, caught in a sense of uh, contraction, feelings of anxiety, separation. So tonight, speaking about fear and how it's an aspect of life as a human being that we will need to come face to face with in the process of awakening. Because fear is what keeps us in a state of contraction, which keeps us feeling separate. And, you know, it's natural, normal, that as we journey into unknown territory, where there is a growing sense of uncertainty, that fear will arise. But this is just another aspect of experience we can learn from. We can actually learn to directly face and not be thrown about by, which is what happens in our lives when we don't know about mindfulness, awareness, that we encounter fear, and it's terrifying. We run, we flee, or we come up with strategies in life that will keep us from touching into that fear. And all that can do is keeping us living within the realms of the known. It doesn't allow us to explore life fully and totally. It won't allow us to discover the heart that is free from fear, that is fearless, boundless, non-constricted. It can be such a big part in our lives. My very first memories of a child are places where I encountered fear. And just looking back, I recognize that it really stopped me. You know, there's a freezing that happens with fear and keeps one bound. I mean, there's the other strategy that other people have. You know, and with, with fear, as I speak about fear, to know that we all have our own tendencies. We all have different places where fear is going to arise. So, you know, some of it may really resonate. Others, like, you know, 
I don't have any fear about that. But it's just different for each of us. But that's part of the exploration, to see where the shrinking, the shying away from, the pulling back arises in our own mind stream. And some people have great capacity to deny it, you know, can put on a great sense of bravado, of fearlessness, but yet might fall. And in many instances, it may be true. But there could be some place where this uncertainty arises. You know, for many of us, a strong fear in our lives can be just the fear of death. And, but we actually will act very contrary to that. You know, I know someone who has an immense fear of death but can come across as being so confident. And part of that confidence is learning to assert oneself in a way that it appears that one has control. And it's covering over a deep-seated fear of death where life is not controllable. So in looking towards fear, just to know we will all have our different forms that it will arise in. Fear itself will arise in very different degrees. You know, there can just be uh, a very subtle, unpleasant, often strong emotion or agitation or anxiety that is caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. You know, and sometimes in our practice, it can be really subtle. It's just kind of a a sense of tension, not being able to let go. But it's not, you know, like full-blown terror that also can arise. So it can be kind of a subtle feeling of disquiet or apprehension. Uh, It can be a sense of dread or uneasiness. You know, just having to dread facing a situation which we know we have to face, but it tends to bring up fear. You know, sometimes in retreats, people can actually dread going into the dining room. You know, having to face a room full of people, especially when we've been getting quiet still. And it brings up this sense of dread or uneasiness. Sometimes fear comes very unexpectedly. Something happens quickly and it startles us. And actually at times in practice, this can happen just in the arising. You know, suddenly there's a visual image. And it doesn't even have to be a frightening image. But the impact of it arising so quickly, so unexpectedly, brings up a sense of fright. Sometimes there's a panic where there's a sudden frantic fear or when we encounter a strong moment of uncertainty. Um, You know, it can be a moment in our practice where suddenly we tap into a sense of groundlessness. And, you know, it happens just in a moment. It's like somebody pulls the, the ground out from under our feet. What seems stable in one moment is suddenly gone 
This is groundlessness and can at times bring up panic. Sometimes we might experience really horrible images that arises in the mind and there's a sense of horror. It might be just, you know, a random image, you know, a contorted image of some sense, or it might be a a past memory where there was, you know, a lot of fear, and just in the scene of this brings up, you know, a strong sense of there's fear and aversion mixed in with it. And, you know, it becomes like horror. And then there's the full-blown terror, you know, where frozen mind, body, it's anguish. And it can be so intense and overwhelming. All of this, all of this is workable. And I know those moments of really strong terror, it can be hard to believe that this too will pass. This too is just another conditioned mind state. But, you know, I know through my own limited experience that this is true. I, you know, my journey has included a lot of fear on retreat. You know, it's, this is, in many ways, as safe as an environment as we're going to find in this world. And yet, we begin to see that the fear that we face is not just about the external world, but internally. You know, that there are many things, many mind states that we can have fear about. You know, that if we've been prone to a lot of self-judgment, self-hatred, fear of getting caught in that. I remember just simple things like fear of restlessness. You know, to know how long an afternoon can be if we're caught in restlessness. And so, you know, I'd sit down and I'd just want to get concentrated. You know, quick, come on, let, let me get focused here before this restlessness can arise. <laughs> you know, it's based in fear. Oh, the inner torments of mind we can have strong fear about. Actually, just while I'm on the subject of different kinds of fear, I think I'll just jump to that because, I mean, this is where maybe I'll hit upon something that resonates with you. Um, Fear of events, things that might come to pass. This is where we really strongly start to project into the future. And on retreat, the simplest things, you know, it can be uh, our next interview, you know, fear of what we might say, fear of looking stupid, fear of just having to meet another person face to face. What happens when we have fear of events, fear of people, that we can really move into compulsively planning? You know, 
I know having been a person who had fear uh, fear around interviews of really trying to plan out everything I might say you know as if you know if I did that then I would be safe you know uh, fear of um you know if we have fear of being in the dining room you know really <laughs> You know, going into the dining room early, getting your dishes, setting them down where you're going to feel safest. You know, just strategies that will try and minimize that fear. And, you know, and we plan it. And then, of course, you know, we get to what we planned and something's happened, things have changed. You know, we can't. We won't find safety in that way. But boy, you know, I can, 50 years old, and I can still find find myself trying to do that trying to really plan future events so that there won't be this sense of insecurity. (laughs) Fear of public speaking. This is where I can say, sitting up here right now, this is proof that the practice really can help with fear. I was a child who would not raise her hand in class. You know, it was just way too scary. (laughs) And then I remember um, some years ago, I was giving a talk, and I had an old friend come. And she knew me from back in grade 7, and she, you know, knowing me in years. You know, I would be around people and never speak. Forget about class, just the social situation. I didn't talk. You know, I just didn't do that. And then, so here's this friend who hasn't seen me in many years sitting in the audience. And this person she remembers sitting up there speaking to a large group of people. She said to me after, you know, I couldn't believe it. I could believe that you really got into meditation. That was no surprise at all. But that you would sit up in front of a group of people and talk. Unbelievable. (laughs) And, you know, when I first started giving Dharma talks, or not even giving Dharma talks, the very first retreat that I assisted with, um, one of the tasks I was given was to do the chanting at the end of a day. And, well, it would have been easier to ask me to give a Dharma talk because, you know, my view of self was one who cannot sing, one who cannot chant. I felt like I was going to die. Talk about terror. You know, when I first went to go to the Dharma Hall to lead the chanting, I couldn't go in. I walked right past the hall. (laughs) And then, you know, it was like, okay, somebody's got to (laughs) go. I got to do this. (laughs) I got to turn up. And so I went, and, you know, I sat down, and I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know? (laughs) And so the only thing I could think to do was something I'd learned in my practice. Just go into it totally. And so I threw all of my energy into that chanting. You know, and it was probably loud, off-key, but I didn't know. I was just doing it as totally as I could. And the fear, it did subside. It did abate. You know, it did diminish. And, you know, it, it was... It's a hard thing to learn about that kind of fear publicly, <laughs> you know, but it is workable. I really saw it. It really is workable.
fear of failure. I mean, that can be tied in on so many levels to different kinds of fear. And I remember being young, and there was things I wouldn't do because I was afraid it would show I couldn't do it. And so it was better not to try. And you know, that's where we really see it keeps us bound. It keeps us just in this world of the known. We can't touch into the unknown. We can't broaden. We can't grow when we're stopped by this fear of failure. We often find this fear connected to our bodies. Know that fear of being sick, fear of being hungry. Many times in practice, we can really work with this fear because there can be, you know, fear of body pain. And as many of us know, we have experienced pain, seen the fear come up around it, being with it, allowed, accepted, stayed with, and it changed. It's all impermanent. I remember at one time in my own practice that, you know, I could sit comfortably for an hour. And so that's what I did. I had a really nice practice. One of my teachers decided to push me, said, sit longer. I resisted. I, I was like, why bother? You know, I don't need to do that. Why, why would I do that? And then, you know, one day I sat longer. The body pain came. It took me out of my comfort zone. It was, it was really challenging. And, you know, it wasn't like I immediately did really well with it. <laughs> In fact, I floundered for quite a while. But there was really this sense of pushing an edge, looking at, you know, go, moving out of that comfort zone. And, you know, that's something to look at and practice. Sometimes we don't need to worry about it at all. We're not in our comfort zone. But sometimes we kind of really manipulate a type of practice that's really in the cruise, that's really in the ease. Don't get near any of the stuff that touches the fear. So if you're really feeling that equanimous, challenge yourself a bit. Really see. You know, and it's not that we want to cause physical harm through our sitting, but, you know, so many times, fear about the body. It it runs really deep, you know, because ultimately it's tied in with the fear of death. I've noticed, too, I mean, not just on a retreat, I wish it was just on a retreat, but in life, many times, a body pain comes up. Pain in the chest. Heart attack. <laughs> Pain in the ribs. Oh, my liver. Cancer. <laughs> you know, it can be in a split second. You know, it can be pretty almost embarrassing to see. <laughs> but, you know, it's there. Recognize it. It's okay. Now, I've already mentioned fear of mind states. Repetitive mind states that we get caught in. 
If we don't learn to accept, if we don't learn to really face, our experience remains fragmented, fearful. Again, trying to navigate life so we don't touch these things. The fear of change is really strong. You know, and sometimes for people, you know, at the Forest Refuge, this fear of change comes up just with people coming and going. You know, that that can trigger strong abandonment. You know, it could be in our childhood. We faced a lot of issues around abandonment. And so something as simple as the comings and goings can trigger that fear. That's okay. Let it be something to be faced, to become known, to be brought into the light of awareness. You know, with all of these fears, it's really, you know, learning how to be honest enough to see it, to allow it, to touch it, to really let it be felt so we, we can touch what's underneath it. You know, we, we can become really tender around the experience of fear. Instead of, you know, harsh ways that we have of trying to override it. You know, and that was something that, you know, in just my fear of public speaking, you know, it could be a sense of, all right, <clears throat> I'm going to get it together. I'm going to push through this. But, you know, it, it led to a harshness. It led to a tightness, a rigidity. You know, a, a w- way of doing it was, you know, notes upon notes upon notes, and that will keep me secure. That will give me ground to stand on. You know, instead, through speaking, having to learn to let the mind go blank and survive the experience, <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay. We touch it gently. We let it be. It's all workable. One of the strongest fears that can come up for us in meditation is the fear of annihilation. No, we just have this sense that if we really let go, it will be void will be extinguished. Nothing will be there. And it's frightening. You know, the response of the ego is, It's scary. And it, you know, it, it's something common in practice. But we really, you know, we explore that, work with it. This is a part of the practice. We learn to let the fear be there. We learn to see what's driving that fear. You know, there's just ideas, beliefs, concepts in the mind. You know, and sometimes around fear, it's really hard to see the concept, the the misunderstanding, the misconception that is feeding the fear. If we don't learn to stand our ground, or we don't learn to face the fear, we don't learn to let it be there, we won't see the concept that's fueling it. 
And that's why it's so important. Because it's just some misconstrued idea. If I can read it, which might not be possible. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> so this is from a Zen master named Hong Hong Pao Po. He was uh, from the ninth century. He says, Ordinary people look to their surroundings, while followers of the way look to the mind. But the true Dharma is to forget them both. The former is easy enough, the latter very difficult. People are afraid to forget their minds, fearing to fall through the void with nothing to stay their fall. They do not know that the void is not really void, but the realm of the real Dharma. If we're going to know true Dharma, if we're going to know that which is reliable, we're going to need to know groundlessness, needing to let go of that you know, which is often almost instinctual sense of trying to make one secure through clinging and attachment. We find that fear is really deeply encoded in our genes. You know, if you look in the natural world, Animals experience a lot of fear. You know, it it gives them signals when danger is approaching. Watching just even the, the squirrels around here, you know, you can see just their little bodies quivering in fear. You know, it's it's a piece of the survival mechanisms. But what we as human beings have the capacity to do is to distinguish between danger and the wisdom that might help one to remove oneself from danger and that which is an imagination in the mind or that which is a reaction to danger that just brings up aversion and fear that clouds and confuses the mind. You know, it's like we really, as human beings, have this capacity to, to learn to distinguish. There's actually said to be both healthy fear and unhealthy fear. Hmm. Let's see if I can find Healthy fear is, uh, in Pali, what's called hiri and otapa. These are actually called the guardians of the universe, which to me was uh, kind of interesting. They're translated as moral shame or conscientiousness and fear of wrongdoings. These fear come out of respect, respect for ourselves and respect for others. It's knowing that we can do harm 
and not wanting to causes us to be heedful, to take care, to have consciousness about what we do. There, you know, on one level, like a, a healthy fear, maybe quitting smoking because of the fear of cancer. You know, we learn about cancer, what can come from smoking, and rather than denying that fear, we listen and we respond with wisdom. In our practice, we often come to notice what happens when we're mindless, when we don't take care. And we see that as a consequence, harm is caused. And so, you know, I've seen in myself, there can actually come a fear of not being mindful. And so what it does, again, is it just brings about this heedfulness. It becomes a way of protecting oneself to not cause unnecessary pain. But unhealthy fear is based upon attachment, based upon wanting to guard things, you know, afraid of loss, afraid of losing, you know, bodies, health, afraid of losing loved ones, afraid of separation, um, afraid of death, aging, afraid of that which may be inevitable. You know, and certainly it's not that we want to uh, we want to have a healthy fear around our bodies, but not the obsessive fear. You know, the not we you know, it the body is subject to decay. Holding that with wisdom. You know, not not clinging to a sense of the young and the beautiful and afraid of the aging. We find that fears can be very irrational. That we can be completely terrified of a little bug. Uh, And some bugs (laughs) can do damage, but Um, You know, people just will develop fear around different experiences. So, working with fear. This is our task. This is what our journey is, you know, it's a part of the journey, facing these fears. As with any experience. It's first mindful, recognition, awareness of. And sometimes, you know, fear is underneath something. We don't, we won't know it unless uh, we pay attention. You know, many times anger can be rooted in fear. Sadness can be rooted in fear. Grief 
No, but we, if we, we're not paying attention, we won't know this. Through our practice, we learn to turn right into the experience of fear. And this is not what often our habituated response is. And so it takes a training. It tra- takes encouraging ourselves at times. You know, reminding ourselves that this is a teacher. This is something that can be learned from. This is something we can explore. It takes a courageousness of heart. And sometimes that courageousness is just the willingness to acknowledge it. We can't always dive straight into it. Sometimes we can only touch the edges of it. You know, just to say, fear, I see you. I recognize you. And then, you know, maybe in order to stay connected, we have to find a more neutral experience, some place the mind can touch into. But other times, we'll have that energy. We'll be able to really be with it, to explore it, to know it, to come to know the nature of fear, what fear feels like. As we explore it, we begin to see the patterns, the thoughts. You know, many times we'll see, you know, especially well, anything, but body pain, you know, fear that when our knee starts to hurt, that uh, we have the thought, I won't be able to walk. And then we just begin to see how there's a weight to that, how that, you know, that just accelerates this fear when we believe that thought. And with fear, thoughts have a strong impact So it's really necessary to recognize the thoughts because this is how the state gets fueled. You know, and if it's something, even just to see that, that we're taking maybe some unpleasant experience in the moment and we're projecting it into the future and building, you know, a whole story around it that is completely fabricated. But it's that identification, that believing, that accelerates the fear. You know, and it can, in a split second, that can become huge. And that, you know, in that my exploration of fear, it was to see how quickly that happens. And, you know, that just points to the need for continuity, staying steady with the practice. Really, uh, to be able to see those thoughts in their arising. You know, then it's not like having something explode and then how, you know, you've got a huge raging bushfire. But if we see it and we don't buy into those thoughts, we know them for what they are. It helps keep these fires from blazing. 
Some years ago, I was sitting with Sayadaw Upandita and going through a period of intense fear. And it wasn't fear that arose during the day in my practice. It happened when I went to bed at night. And when I would go to go to sleep, suddenly fearful images would arise. And it was bringing out, you know, it was making it so I was afraid to fall asleep. And so, you know, I went and I was reporting it to him. And one of the things he said to me in one interview was he asked me if I was noting fear with fearing mind. And that was just so evident to me as soon as he said it. You know, I could see that there would be this huge experience of fear and I'd be sitting there going, fear, fear, no It wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't with mindfulness because mindfulness accepts. You know, mindfulness, and this wasn't acceptance. And then the other thing he said to me, it was one day he asked me, when I went to bed, did I have fear that that, 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 that experience would happen again that night? And this was after a series of many nights of going to bed and you know, going to fall asleep, having this fear arise, not being able to sleep. And so, yes, you know, every night when I got into bed, will it happen tonight? And he said, to have that thought is to fuel the fear. You have to be so mindful that thought doesn't even arise. Now, I wasn't quite that mindful, but I could see the thoughts in their arising. And that really shifted things. So, but that needs that continuity to really see. When fear arises, there's the tendency to disconnect, disassociate, to separate from that which feels dangerous. You know, so it's a natural response. And so when we see that there's fear, look to see where you can connect. Maybe you can go straight into that experience of the fear. Maybe there can be a resting in the coolness, the awareness of fear. Maybe you have to shift the attention you know, I found that, you know, with fear, the body could feel very cold, death-like. The breath was <gasps> gasping. It, too, felt death-like. So I was looking to see what's more neutral. There was, you know, uh, one thing I found was just a, an awareness of the outer layer, the, the skin, the contact with the air. No, it was quite neutral. Sounds could be neutral. Sometimes, um, you know, walking, just feeling that contact with the earth, that can be a place of connection where it doesn't feel so threatening. Sometimes, um, you know, chanting metta really quickly in one's mind. You know, metta was actually a practice that the Buddha gave to monks who were experiencing a lot of fear. 
And so by chanting metta, it helps to soften, to open, to accept. But looking to see when fear is there, where can we connect? Really looking to that tendency to disconnect and just see, can we, can we stay steady with any aspect of experience? Really checking our attitude towards fear. No, can, can we let it, invite it in as a teacher, as something we can learn from, as a place of exploration? We might find that we need to begin with the smaller fears that we experience, that we aren't always ready to go into the huge terror but just the little places of fear, just letting the mind rest there, letting the experience be known. Using investigation, inquiry, what's happening? The awareness of the thoughts, the impact of the thoughts, the awareness of associated mind states, the awareness of the mind that knows it, opening to the totality of the experience. We find this really takes us to the place of non-identification where we can know fear in its nature, as it is, to know this is just another mind state. It's born out of conditions. If we don't feed it, we don't fuel it, like everything else, it is impermanent. It's not who we truly are. Fear gets robbed of its power, of the hold that it has over us. There is a a line from someone named Michael Pritchard. He said, fear is like the little dark room where all the negatives are developed. If we just let it fester, we just... Don't give it wise attention. It breeds all of these negative forces in the mind. And yet to turn into, to face, we can touch into fearlessness. I'd like to share a story. I think I have time, yeah. You know, there's many teachers who have been more demanding of their students than we may be here and, and, you know, ask them to go out and practice in situations that would bring up fear. And this is especially true, I think, in the Thai forest tradition, 
where you know many people have gone out into the jungle to practice. Uh, you know, um, in, in areas where there's tigers around, and they may, may have a strong fear of tigers, and they're told to go out and practice. And you know, it, 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 it's a, it's a intense form of practice, and yet it's been a breakthrough for many people. But I'd just like to share this one story. This is about Ajahn Pan. He was a Thai force monk. He lived in the early 1900s. And one time he was traveling through uh, with a group of monks in this area that had a lot of tall grass and thick bushes. And there were said to be many buffaloes, big snakes, wild crocodiles, elephants that would charge and kill people. And in fact, right before this incident, there had been some monks who had been trampled and killed. Uh, And so these monks approached this area, and they set up their umbrella tents, which is what they slept under. And when they had them set up, then some of the villagers came along and told them about these monks whom had recently been killed. But one of the rules that these monks live by is that once they put up their tent, they need to stay there for the night. And so Ajahn Pan reminded his group of monks of this because he said you had to be willing to die for the Dhamma. And then he instructed them to do Brahma-vihara practice. So they're under their tents. And then around... 10 o'clock in the evening, these wild elephants turned up. And they were led by a huge bull. And Ajahn Pan's tent was the first tent on the path. And the elephant came, and he stood right over top of Ajahn Pan. And he stood there motionless. And Ajahn Pan was practically right underneath his big belly, which widened out on either side. And then, one by one, these elephants squeezed past the monk's tents. The last elephant was more mischievous. The villagers called him Twist because he had one twisted tusk. And after he passed by, he turned around and started to charge the Ajahn. In this terrifying moment, the Ajahn was not disturbed. He later said, With aspiration toward awakened understanding, my mind was equanimous. If I were to die in this mind state, I would go straight to Tushita heaven and be watching the elephant from there. Ajahn Pan then directed his mind to penetrate the minds of his disciples. I then looked into the minds of my four companions and saw that they all aspired towards awakened understanding. I felt relieved that my fellow monks all had the same intention. The story goes on to say that the big bull elephant, this was the first one, managed to stop the other elephant from charging and then walked up to Ajahn Pan and kneeled down and lifted up his trunk as if paying respect. The uh, Ajahn was reported to have said that the bull must have been a bodhisattva. (laughs) I was really touched when I read this story. You know, a couple of things. One is these monks just had this 
such strong commitment to their aspirations, to their nobility of heart, that kept them totally on track in a moment where it would be easy to be overwhelmed by terror, fear. It wasn't based upon outcome that if they stayed confident in their practice that it would happen as it did, that these elephants would move on. That was never said to be the outcome. But to know that their minds would stay protected, that Dhamma would protect them. This is really striking. And I think there's a lesson for us all in this. It's not about the outcome, but the Dhamma will ultimately protect us. The other thing that was striking to me is this story didn't say these monks, maybe Ajahn Pan, you know, maybe he was fully realized, I'm not sure, but these other monks weren't said to be fully realized. And even then, their practice protected them. So even, you know, we may not be fully realized, but our practice can protect us. It's something we can turn to. We aren't in the middle of the jungle. (laughs) But we do have our own places of fear. And, you know, I know of another experience. It was a very fabricated experience where, you know, just waking up in the middle of the night and hearing an unknown sound, not sure what it was, imagination saying, someone's coming to kill me. You know, it was a really strong fear that came up. But then right behind it was, well, if I am going to die, I don't want to die in the state of fear. And it was amazing, the impact of that thought. It just cut through everything in that moment. And that to me, you know, I think there's many people that die in a state of fear because they haven't faced fear in their lives. We have that opportunity, even if it just is, you know, as we're here and we know food is abundant, fear that we won't get enough food. You know, whatever our fears may be, it really will help us to be, learn to be with the deepest fears that we may encounter. Facing fear will be strengthened 
when as trust strengthens, as we really do discover what is our true refuge, as we do discover the power of awareness, confidence grows. Our practice becomes, you know, just a play of watching the moments where the fear arises, the moments where we can let go, trust, relinquish, where there isn't this scrambling to try to control our experience. Through this, we we learn to relax in the midst of chaos, to relax with groundlessness, to relax with vulnerability, continual change. Watching that we don't judge ourselves if fear does arise. Because this is where we can learn, where understanding can come, where we can just see fear in its arising as it is. There was something else I wanted to. We find that within fear there can be this lack of trust. This grasping, wanting. But as we practice, as the steadiness of heart and mind comes, this sense of refuge, stability, of awareness, we discover that what we need is here. This is part of a poem by Wendell Berry called The Wild Geese. In the ancient faith, what we need is here, and we pray not for new heaven or earth, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. Our journey is this discovery. What we need is here. Through the discovery of this, we move from fear to fearlessness. So let's just sit for a moment.
May all beings come to know freedom from fear. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.